0: Oh, hey, listeners. This is Jonah. We're going to get started with the show in just a second, but uh, I wanted to let you know about something really excited. I'm actually sitting here on the line with uh, John Pudhoritz. Hi, John. Hello, Jonah. And Rob Long. Hi, Rob.
1: Hi, Jonah.
0: And uh, we are what uh, are known in the Greater Bavarian region as the Dry Podcasters Bund. And <laughs> if you would like to attend a Zoom conference, not to be confused with the 1970s public access, our public television TV show Zoom, um, although if you tune in, John will actually sing the theme song from Zoom, which has the exciting lyrics of zooma, 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 Zoom, Zoom, um, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. We are doing another one of our exciting. Uh, three-way Zoom video conference things. The last one was a big hit. John, wasn't the last one to fun? It was so much fun that we wouldn't get off the air. Yeah, we went on. It we just went on. A went while. On for went on a while. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, Which is so good. We'll it's it good, though. It's yeah. good. But it went on a while. We're going to do another one this Sunday, April 26th, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Uh, Drag Queen Story Hour time. And, uh, we, uh, if you were, if you are a member paid member of the dispatch of ricochet or of commentary, you will get, if you sign up, you will get the code. Um, Rob or John, how do, how do we get them this more information to sign up for it? I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh. We don't know. We don't know. It'll just happen. Uh, The way way when you make something, gravy just comes with the meat. Okay. There there will be uh, information in the show notes for this podcast and in the various sundry section of this Friday's G-File. I hope you guys can make it. Bye, John. Bye, Rob. Bye, Jonah. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of The Remnant Podcast, uh, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out who killed JR. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by SaneBox. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so we are back to the standing tradition, the long-running corona tradition of trying to get people on this podcast that we've wanted on for a very long time. And... Uh, this is one of the true longest get interviews, which is very odd given his social schedule. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one, literally, literally, not figuratively, one of my oldest friends, uh, sort of a partner in crime of mine back when I first came to Washington. I first met him when he was a editor at the Public Interest run by the sainted Irving Crystal, uh, which was a hotbed of sin and iniquity. Um, back in the early 90s and is now a uh, uh, esteemed historian and a professor or something like that at uh, University of Massachusetts, Boston. I got that's, that right. That's it. Uh, my friend. Uh, uh, and I'm going to stop saying uh now. Uh, Vin Canato. Vin, welcome to the Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. This is great. This is uh, this is actually my first podcast ever. Is that right? I believe it or not. Yeah, I've heard about these things.
1: I, I'm not sure what they are, but I'm, I'm interested in, in learning more.
0: Really? Because, you know, in, uh, Andy Warhol revo- revised his thing and said in the future, everyone will have a podcast for 15 minutes. That's that's terrific. So I get, I get mine right here. <laughs> um, it's actually, like, you remember in the, the early 2000s was like that golden age of blogging where everybody had a joke about how, don't you have a blog, right? It's kind of become that with podcasts now. But, yeah. Um,
1: you got to have a podcast. I know. It's, that's what I'm learning here. I'm, I'm behind the times.
0: Um, but we already had our old mutual friend, uh, Tevi Troy, on here.
1: I listened to it. Yeah, it's very good.
0: And it was weird because, as I, I think I said on the podcast, I just feel like Vin should come just barging into the studio at any moment and tell us to shut up or something. Here, um, here I am. And here you are. So for listeners who want some context other than the context they already gave you, I uh, told this story I know a couple times on GLOP and maybe once or twice on here too about how I had this friend who's this historian who did this book about John Lindsay as the high water mark of American liberalism, yada, yada, yada. And Lindsay had, this former mayor of New York had all these these sort of uh, defenders and praetorians who wanted to protect his legacy at all times. And um, the one thing they always brought up was the fact that John Lindsay brought Hollywood back uh, to new york city well the story about the historian vin is the historian in question so vin why don't you just sort of fill in the context from there
1: yeah i mean this is one of the uh, Lindsay was kind of a entertainment guy he liked celebrities and so why not bring hollywood to, to new york this is sort of the end of the studio era so the idea of coming filming on the streets was was becoming popular so um so new york city opened business to, to hollywood to come in um to come and film on the streets of New York. And lo and behold, by the late 60s and early 70s, they're filming on the streets of New York. And guess what? Streets of New York didn't look very good. And this kind of, if you look at movies from the late 60s, 1970s in New York City, they're kind of posters for what was wrong with New York and what was wrong with the Lindsay administration. So kind of one of their great signature hallmark successes really helped was part of their undoing. Because you look at all these movies, Taxi Driver, which is mid-70s, Panic in Neil Park, You know, I mean, they show a city. French Connection. French Connection. Death
0: Uh, Wish was a later one, but still sort of in that genre.
1: Yeah, I mean, Midnight Cowboy, um, uh, across 110th Street. Uh, So TCM, Turner Classic Movies, is doing all month this month in April, they're featuring classic New York City 1970s movies. And, you know, Ben Mankiewicz introduces it, and, you know, he's always saying how, you know, this shows, you know, how bad New York had gotten this time. And you can see it. I mean, Panic in, in Needle Park, it was about what ten blocks from where you grew up, Jonah? Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's it's hard to believe that now you know it's this really upscale, upper west side, um, very upper middle class, nice, expensive area. And, and you look at the early seventies, um, and it was
0: kind of a kind of a mess. Yeah, and- I remember when you were working on your on that Lindsay book, you print back in the days when people used this stuff called microfilm, and you <laughs> you printed out this. Uh, New York Times editorial, I think, from like 73, that referred to the area between Lincoln Center and Zabar's as, quote, a no man's land. <laughs> you know? and, and today, a closet there goes for a million dollars. You know? Yeah, easy, yeah.
1: easy. Yeah, no, and, and people living in New York now, especially so many of them are not New Yorkers, right? they have no idea of this. You know, they're walking down Broadway in the 70s and 80s, they have no clue what, in you know, just in the lifetime of many of us, what that really looked like and what life was like there, and it's hard for a lot of people to imagine. That's how you get Bill De Blasio, right? You know, it's, people don't people don't remember that. So yeah,
0: um, I just want to because there are so few opportunities to get this in in a non gratuitous sophomoric way. But when you say that John Lindsay likes liked celebrities, Florence uh, Henderson, he, <laughs> he, he liked celebrities so much that he gave Mrs. Brady crabs. <laughs>
1: I, I, I wish I knew that when I was writing the book. That didn't come out until after the book was over. I've heard, I heard other stories, and I, I, I left some stuff out. But, yeah, um, I didn't had not heard that until after the book was published.
0: Yeah, I think it was in her autobiography. She said that John Lindsay gave her crabs, which is just like – <laughs> it's just it's just great. It's just I mean, it's terrible. It's horrible, blah blah blah. It was blah, the swinging it's... 60s. Come on. I, I think she yeah. was on Broadway. Yeah.
1: Lindsay was really a Broadway guy. That was his high culture for Broadway. He wasn't really a he, he liked Broadway. And I think she was on Broadway at that time. that. Um,
0: so are you saying that gave him a permission structure to give her crabs? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no comment. No. Comment. <laughs> I know you got students to deal with. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's um, right. Uh, so before we leave the issue of New York, um, you know, one of the things I've let's just stay on. You're a New Yorker, right? You got your well,
1: yeah. But I have to be careful around Jonah, right? Yeah, Jonah right. is a New Yorker. He was born and raised in, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I was born and raised about thirty-five miles north. So even though it's New York State, the New York Metro area, I'm a suburban guy. But yeah, I was born yeah. And but you know,
0: in, I, I'll tell you, it's it's sort of like uh, you can either be born into Judaism or you can convert you've uh you've you've done your rituals right and the, the rituals for the conversions are much tougher than the born intos right um so you used to run tours of lower the lower east side chinatown all that kind of stuff you used to do walking tours, which were great walking tours and you're all throughout
1: new york central park greenwich village brooklyn bridge yeah
0: and you got your Ph.D. in urban history or whatever from Kent Jackson, who's sort of like the dean of that stuff. At right? Columbia,
1: yeah. Spent, uh, spent eight years, seven, eight years in New York. That's so, great.
0: I mean, you know, and, and you know, you, you, you count as right. far as I'm concerned.
1: And, and but, we're also, I mean, you know, my, my grandmother was born on Elizabeth Street down in what's now Nolita, which is kind of funny, but little Italy. Uh, they, left, they left New York in, I think, 1910. They were sort of
0: early suburbanites. So one of the things you told me on one of the tours because I used to take, I used to be a big evangelist for for Vin's tours, and if there's some truly deep-pocketed person out there who wants a great granular tour of history uh, of the history of Lower Manhattan or whatever, uh, I'll give you Vin's contact information. But I'm sure he's pricey now. Um, but uh, <laughs> he no longer does grad school grad student rates. But um, one of the things you explained to me was the, and I think he wrote about it for the Standard back in the day. Um, The split in the the sort of Chiang Kai-shek Taiwan Chinese and the Kami Chinese in Chinatown. Yeah. Ex- explain that a little bit and, and what do you know about where it stands right now? So when Hong Kong was sort
1: of given back to the Chinese, at least as much as it, it was, um, they had a huge celebration in Chinatown for this. This was a great thing. But the older Chinese Americans by this time, um, who a lot of them had lived out in Queens, were not happy about this. These were the newer immigrants who had come in who were much more sympathetic to the and They're not communists, but they were much more sympathetic to the – you know, to so the imperial, land, imperial demands of, yeah, of, of China. Whereas the older ones were much more anti-communist, the Cantonese, uh, the older business community. So there's that split where it is today. I, I don't know, but I'm guessing that it's probably a lot similar that most of the, the newer immigrants coming in are, are much more sympathetic to Chinese interests. Whereas the older ones tend to be more anti-communist and more uh, skeptical of
0: China. Yeah. I mean, you see uh, something similar with, the uh sort of the third generation Cubans in Florida, mm. where like, you know, the people who actually came over with nothing but the shirt on their back were really anti-Castro, but their kids or grandkids weren't necessarily, which is-
1: Well, because really the kids and grandkids went to college and took all kinds of ethnic studies classes and stuff like that. I think that's, you see that as well.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll return to the state of higher education <laughs> a little bit. So um, as you know, because uh, I've wanted to do a big project on this for a while and haven't we've had other things to do here at the Dispatch, but I have this theory, which I've talked to you about a little bit, about, and we're not going to get into a big Trump thing, and you notice we haven't even talked about a certain pandemic, Um, uh, but I have this theory that one of the reasons why the Trump flavor of populism took over so quickly, particularly at places like Fox News, but also in the kind of, the sp- that weird crossover between uh, sports radio and politics radio um, is that what people don't understand. Like historically, the you know in twenty sixteen, the people that populist mobs, for one of a better term, would be pointing their pitchforks at, would be the essentially the the Jew from Brooklyn and the billionaire from Manhattan, right? <laughs> and it's, just, it's it was very weird to have this heavily accented Jewish guy and this heavily accented really Queens guy come, you know, Manhattan billionaire be the focal points of populism in America. But um, there is this – my theory is that people like Bill O'Reilly and to a lesser extent but also Sean Hannity, Eric Bowling, that whole crowd – uh, They're either from Long Island or um, grew up in or, or some other suburb like in New Jersey. But they still see themselves as sort of New Yorkers in exile and have this nostalgic thing for the New York that was ruined by fill in the blank. Right. You know, the modern Democratic Party, the, the you know, racial identity politics, whatever it is. And Giuliani came along and ran this sort of bridge and tunnel populist thing and did i think we'll both agree a great job as mayor whatever you think about him now and that was such a politically formative event for a lot of these people that and trump was kind of on the periphery part of that with the woolman ice rink and whatnot that when trump entered national politics so much of the fox new york kind of world really is this new york suburban populist thing that there was just some about them that sort of tickled the erogenous zones of that, and they flipped for him much more quickly than you normally would expect, because you would normally expect people in broadcast and sort of uh, Manhattanites with national profiles not to give into that stuff. But there was this weird secret sauce of New York populism and sort of New York Post style populism that fit. Right? How do you? What do you think of the theory? Yeah. No. I mean, I
1: think I think that's exactly right. That Trump. I mean, you know. We've known about Trump for decades, right? He's nothing new. And he comes out of this, he comes out of New York politics. You have to understand New York politics so I think to understand Trump. And Giuliani's victory was was huge in the 90s, and he showed, it was really now that we see as it, kind of a last gasp of that old world, where he was able to take kind of the business community in New York, so the elite, so to speak, and kind of tie that to more blue collar, middle class, outer borough types in a way to to sort of push forward a, a you know sort of more center right view of city politics. But as part of that, it's you know it's tough politics. You go back to the Dinkins, Giuliani campaigns. You know, this is this is tough stuff. Uh, you know, Giuliani. People forget the first race. He's out there in front of a bunch of cops in City Hall. I mean, the cops almost riot, um, and Giuliani is kind of seen as abetting this this almost cop riot. Um, yeah, this isn't um, you know, this isn't uh, normal. Sort of inside the Beltway politics, so this is where Trump comes out of. This is where a lot of his supporters and his support. I mean, you can kind of see. I didn't look at the numbers recently, but my understanding is that Trump actually did pretty well in 2016 in the New York metro area and kind of Connecticut, uh, out suburbs of New York, Long Island. He didn't win them, but he did right. better than Mitt Romney did, um, because he's sort of tapping into these same ideas that these suburbanites had, or you know, their parents in New York. This kind of politics, which was not quite traditional conservative uh, but it was kind of you know, I so said Giuliani tapped into this into the 90s. And, and um, the other thing that Trump was a part of was the Central Park Five, you know, the right. uh, Central of the jogger case, which the whole diff- another discussion. We kind of talked about that a little bit in the past. But he was the guy putting out the, um, you know, the wanted that the whole million dollar ad for this. And there's no surprise that a lot of this is happening. A lot of the kind of revisionism around it is happening around when Trump becomes president, because this is a way to get at Trump as well. But uh, yeah, no, this, this is a, a style of politics that I think is very New York centric and very uh, understandable to us. And that's one reason. I mean, I think, you know, we haven't talked about Trump. You know, I'm less bothered by Trump. I mean, I'm bothered mm-hmm. by a lot of things, but I, I kind of understand where this comes from. I understand what these people are getting at. Um, you know Sean Ham not a huge Sean Hannity fan but you know when i hear him yeah i hear you know, these are voices if you spend any time in the new york metro area these are you know this this is not all that unusual i mean i have friends who yeah, are certainly
0: michael cohen is a guy you would expect <laughs> to see in <him>. here <laughs>
1: <laughs> well michael, michael <laughs> cohen's all well, yeah, that brook yeah he, the, the 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 i i try to stay away from guys who like own Taxi medallions, and yeah. you know, start getting to those businesses. Those are the, <laughs> you know, sort of like the waste management types, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah So, but yeah, no. Th- this is a this is a very recognizable form of politics. I think doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean that it's always pretty. But um, that style of politics and for the left, you know, this is also drives the left. They, real, they know the, the lessons of 90s in New York. They know the successes of the Giuliani. They know the weaknesses, right, that, that Giuliani was able to sort of point out. And this is part of my book on Lindsay. You know, there are these real weaknesses in liberalism that's coming about in the 60s and 70s. And Giuliani, Trump are pointing those out. A lot of them have to do with the weaknesses of elites. Right? Liberal elites, this is, a, this is a huge problem. There's a big weakness here when you are dictating how uh, you know, working and middle class people should live, but then the rules don't apply to you. Right? And, and right. During the Lindsay era, sure, it's one thing for people living on the east side of, of Manhattan to say, oh, you know, let's build a big public housing project in the middle of a working class neighborhood in Queens, but you know, not build one on Park Avenue. And that's, those, that kind of, that's the kind of populism I think Trump is, is sort of tapping into.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also think, though, when you go back to Giuliani, because I'm going to try and keep this relatively Trump free. um, um, It also shows you, though, that those kinds, I mean, George Will, who I'm sure at this point is not a huge fan of Rudy Giuliani, but I don't know for sure. Um, We can we can call him. Uh, (laughs) But uh, George, you know, wrote that Giuliani was responsible for the single greatest success in conservative governance or in governance in 50 years or something like that back in the day. It shows you how sometimes those issues work better when the issue climate, when the, when the reality on the ground is conducive to it, right? When the actual issue climate, the, you know, when Trump was talking about American carnage and whatnot, a lot of that was sort of Roger Stone manufactured BS, right? Because it was the amount of New- was at
1: the lowest rate, you know, some of the lowest rates in
0: 50 years. Yeah. Right. But meanwhile, the New York City that we remember from the late 80s and early 90s was galvanizing for a lot of sort of moderate Democrat type, yeah. liberal Republican types in a way that made them listen to Giuliani, you know, even for the orthodontist, who was driving in from New Rochelle who didn't even vote in New York City, the squeegee men, people don't, you know, people think that the squeegee men were like welfare queen BS symbol. These guys were really in your face who would run up to your car and literally make your windshield dirtier with like some soiled piece of cloth and then sh- try to shake you down for money. And those quality of life things, you know, just the whole fact that William, you know, James Q. Wilson got dragged in as a sort of brainiac and 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 brain trust on these kinds of things showed you that that kind of stuff worked I don't and anyway the reason why I think about it is when you were saying before about um yeah the problem is is those third generation Cuban kids they went and took ethnic studies and went to you know uh, you know went to college and and got trained out of it that's the sort of this is the thing I always worry about with conservatism in general, is that the successes of sort of conservative governance, liberal democratic capitalism, it's a sort of Schumpeterian point. They create sort of the, the in a sort of dialectian, dialectic way, they create the forces for their own destruction, right? You know, it's like de Blasio is literally unelectable 25 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, And it is only a city that takes its peace and prosperity, as it were, um, you know, a polis that takes its peace and prosperity for granted that can elect this sort of pot-smoking douchebag. Sorry, I should – that maybe we'll bleep. Those that, that
1: was Jonah. Yeah, that was. Yeah, Jonah. <laughs> no, exactly. Only only a city that's real, that's peaceful, and that kind of works, and not just talk about crime, but a city that kind of works um, would elect someone like De Blasio. You can look at it nationally too. Uh, one thing I always think about is, uh, you know, in an ideal world, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, all these guys should be like funneling money to the Republican Party for what Reagan did to the economy in the '80s. Think about deregulation. Think about union policies, right? Weakening unionization. All these things uh, that sort of help these guys make a lot of money, but what do they end up doing? They don't end up supporting the Republican Party. So you know, a lot of the, the benefits of Republican economic policy over the years have gone to people who increasingly aren't voting Republican anymore. Um, it's sort of a, another aspect of that of that um, that Republicans are, are kind of you know their successes ended up end up weakening them but yeah no it's, it's people forgot about crime in new york everything was fine and now we can elect a guy like de blasio although to his credit i will say remember who he names as the first police commissioner when he becomes mayor i think he brings bratton back right yeah um which was you know for even even a, a you know a broken clock is right that's why he he understood that he understood that he had to convince people that he was gonna um he was gonna you know keep a hold on crime and bringing bratton back was a good sign um so, so yeah, no, it's 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 crazy that we go from Giuliani to Bloomberg to De Blasio. All
0: right, so let's 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 change topics for a second here. Um, I we're recording this on Tuesday morning. Uh, last night, Monday night, around ten something, um, President Trump tweeted that he was cutting off all immigration to the United States. Um, I fast changing. We don't want to date this podcast overly. My suspicion is that this ends up being a lot like the transgender ban that the Pentagon wasn't informed about and that whatever it is, it's not quite what it sounds like. And um, and almost all of the hot takes about how awesome it is or how terrible it is are probably overblown. There wasn't a lot of immigration going on during a pandemic already, right? There wasn't a lot of travel here. So it's not that big a deal. I think there's a case to be made for a pause for immigration, given that we just drew... Something like twenty million Americans out of work. Um, but um, where do you see? Let's assume we get out of the pandemic stuff relatively soon, to one extent or another. What do you? Uh, for listeners who don't know, your second book was on immigration, really about Ellis Island. Um, where do you see immigration going in sort of the as part of the historical story of where it's been?
1: Well, I mean, you would think if you look at the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, uh, what comes after that two years later is immigration reform and immigration quotas. So, And that's directly related, I think, to, to influenza. There are these wonderful ads that I use from the 1920s for, uh, for soap companies, and they're all influenced by in, the influenza outbreak. And there's one that has uh, like a drawing of an obviously kind of a, a pushcart peddler, an immigrant pushcart peddler on one side, and he's counting money. And then there's a very waspy banker on the other side. He's counting money. And the implication is that waspy banker has, you know, is is holding the money that that dirty peddler had and therefore maybe he could get sick. And this kind of shows you how influenza affected people into the 1920s. And I think it also affected the the quotas, which severely restricted immigration. So one would think...
0: Was, 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 Was the peddler, just so I know, did he look like he was a relative of mine? Um, what was the valence of, of his uh, I, I, caricature? I
1: think he was more yes. I think he was more Eastern European than Southern European. Let's put it that okay. way. Yeah, Fair enough. Uh, okay, yeah, definitely. Okay. This was Life Life Boy soap. Uh, they're great uh, ads because uh, they, they they tell that story of the 1920s and how these soap companies were using this fear of germs. I think we're going to see a lot of that kinds of stuff. But you would think that the Pandemic would lead to more immigration controls and greater immigration control. But I think the politics of it won't work that way. There's too many people in America today who are invested in the current immigration policy. I think if you stop most Americans and ask them who comes to this country and why do they come, hardly anyone knows what the policies are today how do do you get a visa today and the vast majority of immigrants coming in legally are people who come in because they have family relations already here so it's you know husbands bringing wives bringing parents, bringing brothers in. And so what that does is it creates a um, sort of a built-in demand domestically for immigration. So cutting off immigration is going to mean a lot of people aren't going to be able to bring over family members. Um, And I think politically, I mean, numbers wise, that's not a majority, but I think that's going to create a, make it harder to really clamp down on immigration. You know, the other thing is the moving towards the more um, sort of high-skilled labor, which I think Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, Case for it, if if I had to bet, I would say we're going to continue the stalemate on immigration. Um, I think both sides are kind of equally drawn on this. I don't think one side is uh, so. I think we're going to kind of keep muddling through. I think it'll still be an issue on the right. I don't think it's quite like Europe because. You know, you can say a lot of things about America, but we do immigration a lot better than the Europeans do. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that's and I try to tell my students that. You think, you know, you think uh, we have problems with immigration. You think sometimes the U.S. government is not so nice in how it treats immigrants. You know, look at the rest of the the Western world. Forget about the you know the non-Western world. Um, you know, look at look at these countries. So we tend to do better in terms of immigrants and immigration so i think we're going to keep muddling through this i don't think we're going to see any any more restrictions in terms of legal immigration there might be tightening in terms of illegal immigration um, but even trump has not been able to that's the thing he hasn't been able to push anything through it's been now 3 years and what does he have to show except for you know the wall parts of the wall maybe here and there but i don't see any i don't see any big pushes to you know e verify or anything like that there hasn't been been that much so
0: uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, every you know, uh, you know, I've always been more of a squish on immigration than you, but I'm, you know, I've been sympathetic to a lot of the arguments that National Review has been putting out for years. And back, you know, if you look, if you talk to the, I don't want to get anybody in any trouble, but if you talk to the people who take immigration very, very seriously, people like Ramesh Panuru and you know, and Rich and um, Krikorian and all that kind of stuff the overwhelming consensus at least the beginning of the trump administration was <clears throat> they would gladly trade a wall which is largely symbolic um just for eve e-verify and strict enforcement of e-verify, and they would consider that a massive yep. win but trump didn't want to e- verify because that's you know he thinks visually <laughs> and wall is cool um and he
1: verifies tough. It requires and it's it, hard. Yeah, yeah it, requires and it requires
0: buy-in from a lot of people. You are hard to get buy-in,
1: political buy-in, and bureaucratic buy-in. Right, you have to create a bureaucracy about this. And and one thing we've learned from the Trump administration is that they're kind of thin on the ground in terms of bureaucracy, in terms of administrative wise and getting things done. I mean, you really need to have a lot of people on the ground in these agencies who can push this through and make it work. And and I don't think they have that.
0: So. Um, you said a second ago talking about your students that you have to tell them that we actually do immigration better than a lot of countries. Um, this is something that we've talked about in the past. It drives me one of the collocutions that I that I despise is when people say with great fervor and intensity, of course in a country like this, or of course in America, we do that right you know it's that kind of thing. And then you find out with a very light amount of probing that they know literally nothing about what, how the way other countries do things. Um, so, like, Australia's immigration policies, Canada's Canada. immigration policies are wildly tougher than ours. Do, do you have a million
1: dollars? Yeah, great. Come on. You can come to Canada. You don't have a million dollars? Well, let's, let's wait and see. Uh, Switzerland. You know, I, I know a little about Switzerland. I love
0: Switzerland's policies.
1: Yeah, Try, try going and, and, and just going over there and say, I want to go for a couple of years and maybe buy a, buy a house. Right? Try to no. It's it's very very difficult to do that. Um, so yeah, no. We and I also think that anglophone countries tend to do immigration better. So U.S., Canada, Australia, England tend to be better than places like France and Germany and Italy and Spain for reasons that are. I mean, there would be another another discussion to talk about.
0: And when you say do immigration better, you don't necessarily mean their policies, but the way we assimilate exactly. immigrants exactly, exactly, and treat them. You know, I have a friend. I think you've met at some point at my mom's, who uh, lives in Paris, and I once asked her. So, and, and she was a, she had become, she wasn't always this way, but she's become crankier, more rightish, and right-wing French is a kind of freaky thing. And, uh, but I'd asked her at one point, I was like in sort of high society, you know, intellectual circles and media circles and and, and business circles. How often do you see? Just sort of people of North African descent at cocktail parties, or whatever, and she was like, never. <laughs> um, and uh, um, you know, and I'm sure there's some filter bias. I'm sure there are some cocktail parties that that happens, but um, but I, I don't just mean on immigration thing. I mean, I, I, this is my my brilliant segue into um, uh, talking about higher education more generally. The the willingness, you know, it's the people who say about how America is, is anti Muslim because of its position on this or that. And then you explain to them, you know, in France that you're like literally not allowed to wear a veil, you know, or wear a cross or whatever. You know, I mean, you, can, you can go country by country. There are all sorts of things that, I mean, going back to the immigration thing in Switzerland, which I actually is my favorite, which is that at the end of the day, if you want to be, I was talking about this with Kevin Williamson on a recent episode. The final arbiter of whether or not you can be made a French, I mean a Swiss citizen, are the people in the in the town in which you live. And if your neighbors don't like you, not only can they say you can't live, they, they you can't they can't kick you out of your town if you're already a Swiss resident, but they can deny you Swiss citizenship, which I just think is awesome. Um, I'm not sure it would work in America, but there'd be lots of people shooting each other. But uh, you know. But the, my more generic point is, is that it feels to me like we raise an enormous number of very smart people who have this idea about America as if um, they're sure every other country in the world or every other enlightened country in the world does things better. It's sort of Martin Le- Martin, uh, Marty Lipset's thing about if you only know one country, you know no countries. Do you find this with your kids including some of the smarter students that they just they're they're kind of weirdly parochial in this way?
1: Yes, no. It, we so My school is probably, it's one of the most diverse student bodies of any university in the country. I think we were ranked number three in terms of diversity and it's actually a nice story because if you look around, there's very little tensions between groups. Everyone seems to get along pretty well. Uh, We don't have the the woke craze that you see in a lot of, especially elite institutions. It, It actually kind of works pretty well. Uh, but I find that my the immigrant students are a little more attuned to this kind of stuff mm-hmm. than the native born American students who I think do you know this is an exaggeration, but a lot of them kind of imbibe this um, sometimes it 's just a very casual subconscious anti americanism right that if you uh, you know, when they look at it, we, we have two stories we tell about immigration. One is the Statue of Liberty give us your tired, you're poor. You know, look at all of our family members, how great, and we all turned out fine. And the other is, you know, the repression, the racism, the Chinese exclusion, all of that. And, you know, and, and they sort of try to go back between the two of them, but they don't have any context for how to understand these ideas because they don't know what other countries do. They don't know, uh, they just assume that multiculturalism is the default for human civilization right Mm -hmm. that's that's how it goes and any failings that we have from that are our own failings name the number of multicultural societies in human history that have been successful and peaceful uh, you know, not very many. It's it's a very hard thing to pull off and a very hard thing to do. And when you look at it, I think we do a pretty good job. I mean, what tends to happen in these, let me think about the Austro-Hungarian empire, or these big empires that have all these different ethnicities. I, mean, I guess that's that would be multiculturalism in a earlier context. I mean, these things kind of break apart. There's tensions. People are at each other's throats. Uh, so yeah, no, the students don't don't really get that because they don't know a lot about the rest of the world, and what they do know often is they get kind of the negative, the, the negative version of history, uh, which is which is kind of tough to, to get around. And a lot of it's just subconscious. It's not even you know, it's not even if they haven't been exposed to Howard Zinn, they're still kind of being exposed to some of these ideas that slip in about you know, American perfidy throughout the ages, mm-hmm. you know, the robber barons. And the, you know, think about the way we talk about the past, which is often in the negative. It's and it doesn't mean it's all has to be positive, right? It's, there's this balance here. So yeah, so they can't think about immigration. All they can think about is, oh, you know, some in my book on Ellis Island, you know, I've got all kinds of stories about people who are excluded, people who are excluded unfairly, some who are excluded fairly. But to understand this, you have to kind of understand how how countries deal with migration and how they've done for hundreds of years.
0: Um, Just some quick migration questions. Uh, How true are the stories that everyone's last name was changed at Ellis Island because they were too ethnic, as it were?
1: I've given – I think my book came out in 2009. I've probably given – Maybe 150, 200 talks, book talks. I get that question every single time. That's why I'm uh, it asking the, it. Yeah, it's the <laughs> bi- it's the biggest myth that exists. I've got it in my book. Uh, it's a myth. So you can't prove a negative. I can't prove that no name was changed at Ellis Island, like, but I can ex- – by explaining the process, you can see how it didn't happen. There's no legal documentation created at Ellis Island for an entering immigrant. You, know, you didn't come in and a guy wasn't saying with a pad, what's your name? and writing it down and there's a legal document that you then use Uh, all the documentation that was done were internal documents and even the ship's manifests if you look at the manifests, you know all kinds of crazy spellings these aren't legal documents so when you got off the island your name was your name Another thing that's interesting is that you know who you were was kind of an elastic concept. You know what your name was. This is an era before the wide use of passports. Passports mm-hmm. weren't required. The era before visas. The era before driver's license, social security numbers. So people had different names, um, and they would use different names, uh, and not. You know, not because they were shady, but just because for family backgrounds, I mean, my grandfather was adopted as a young child. And, you know, depending on where it was, he had two different last names. You know, his, name, his first name is Vincent. Everybody called him Joe. There was no, <laughs> but that wasn't his middle name. He didn't have a middle name. It was just, he was Joe. Um, so, so yeah, so no names were changed at Ellis Island. But the, the myth, and there's one of my theories is that it became a vaudeville act. Uh-huh. You know, there's the famous story of Sean Ferguson. You know, the the Jewish Jewish immigrant Sean Ferguson who comes to Ellis Island, and they ask him his name, and he says Schren Ferguson, which means in Yiddish <laughs> I forgot. And the guy writes down Sean Ferguson. Here's your new name, <laughs> and that's it's so vaudevillian, right? Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. imagine that, that. And there are lots of, there are lots of these kinds of jokes. Um, my theory is that possibly when people uh, went to get naturalized. Cause when you when you become a citizen you get a document that's legalized you have to go to immigration officials so there could have been immigration officials during the time of naturalization years later that wrote down a different name but a lot of immigrants changed their own names I and mean, they 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 wanted to assimilate they wanted to fit in uh, a lot of them had their names changed before they came over here for various reasons yeah, i was gonna Some, say i mean know, like
0: marx's grandfather was a rabbi chief rabbi of like somewhere and and the family name wasn't always M-A-R-X, right? I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff.
1: A lot of that. I mean, I, I, there was a story uh, someone told me of one of their ancestors who went from Russia to Germany, probably trying to evade the authorities. And, of course, when he gets to Germany, changes his name, a much more Germanized name. Uh, and then when comes over to America, keeps
0: that Germanized name. Yeah. Uh, that so may have yeah, been so- what happened with the Goldbergs because we, we know that my great-great-great-grandfather, his name was Stavaskovsky. And then somewhere in the pogroms in uh, like 1890s ish, right? Uh, next thing you know, we're Goldbergs, you know. Um, but where that happened, I don't know. When my brother and I were told by my dad as propagating this myth that uh, the man made us change our name, we we tried to we tried to use Stavoskovsky quite a bit. We were pissed off about it. Um, but, uh, but that's.
1: That's the reason, right? It's it's the man changed our name. It's a way of kind of railing against authorities somehow. Yeah. It's it's the evil authorities it's at Ellis Island who did this. But there was no process at Ellis Island to legally change anyone's name. They weren't recording names. The main recording for all immigrant names was the manifest that was created in Europe by the ship, shipping companies. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with the government.
0: So I just want to be very clear to listeners who think this is just overturned This is the equivalent of overturning Elizabeth Warren's native ancestry. Send all comments care of Vincanato.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've got a, uh, you know, I got a, um, my, my sort of sweet spot demographic for the Ellis Island book are like the 80 year old grandmas, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, they yeah. love the book. But I, I, am the bearer of bad news because these people tell me, Oh yeah, my family changed their name. And I have to say, no, I'm sorry. Your grandmother was wrong. You know? <laughs> what they told you was a lie. Uh, and people get kind of upset when I do that, but yeah. And, and genealogists have been working to try to correct the myth as well.
0: So, um, since we're pissing people off in this regard, uh, how prevalent, if existent at all, were "no Irish need apply" signs?
1: There's um, there's a really good article that I use some sometimes by a guy named Richard Jensen, who's uh, I don't know if he's still alive. He's a sort of a conservative historian, and he takes on the myth of "no Irish need apply," and he tries to prove by looking at newspaper databases he couldn't really he couldn't find any examples of "no Irish need apply." I mean. The chances are, if you see in someone's house a, a thing that says "No Irish Need Apply," that was made somewhere in the 20th century as a mass marketing thing yeah. for Irish
0: Americans, like chachis for Friday, for TGI exactly. Fridays kind of stuff.
1: Now, there are, you know, you look at ads for domestics and housekeepers and I'll say, you know, Protestant girl wanted, I mean, there was definitely discrimination and all that, but the idea of putting like big signs in store windows saying no Irish need apply, I think is probably a bit overstated. Sure. You can't prove a negative. There's no way you can prove that there were no signs. But the idea that there was this prevalence, I mean, Teddy Kennedy used to run on, run this forever. You know, this no Irish need apply. We were, you know, we were put down. This is part of, I think also Irish American lore. Especially up here in Boston, if you spend any time in Boston, that divide between the Brahmin Protestants and the Irish Catholics was huge. And this was part of it. So, yeah, in some newspaper ads for, for domestics, you'll find things like Protestant Girl Wanted. Um, but I think the idea of a widespread uh, no Irish need apply sign is probably more myth than real.
0: OK, and I, I actually did a piece on this. Um, be curious if you disagree with me. But the, ter- the idea that WAP stands for without papers is not true either. So Andrew
1: Cuomo, love Andrew Cuomo. Um, did, you, did you hear about Nipplegate, by the way?
0: Andrew I need Cuomo's, more information.
1: Oh, okay, they use, <laughs> we, we can talk about that later. Uh, So Andrew Cuomo, a little while back, you know, he gets on his high horse and talks about how his family was undocumented because they came over without papers. That's why we were called WAPs, without papers. And so a bunch of people, you know, myself, including others, kind of had to remind him that there's no evidence. You didn't need papers to come over. Therefore, I mean – no one had papers no one needed papers you brought passports if you wanted to just to protect yourself um the best uh, and i don't know if you got to this the best thing i read where wap came from it was a bastardization of a spanish word guapo which right. means handsome the italian men people were on the move in the late 19th early 20th century throughout europe so you had italians going over to spain to work in other parts and there they acquired then guapo and that kind of manifested itself to wop but no they, they were there's the it's a complete myth. and uh, and Cuomo gets really mad because every once in a while people will bring it up, and they'll say, journalists tell me that that's not true, but but we know it's true. <laughs> and uh, you know, my family was undocumented. Yeah. So
0: the the benefit he has is that you can't actually do a twenty three and me DNA test to prove. That his story is BS. <laughs> if, you know, if only Elizabeth Warren had gone with a more non-falsifiable story.
1: Right. Exactly. yes. But no, it's. Uh, but it's a nice. Again, he's trying to sort of say, you know, it, you know, my immigration story is the same as the immigration story of these undocumented workers, which politically makes a lot of sense, but historically just, just doesn't wash. Yeah. And and when historians say that, they don't. Politicians tend not to like that.
0: Um. Okay. So. Uh, Again, if you – because I know when I wrote the thing about without papers and I went back and I looked at you know Mencken's American language thing and it was just very clear from there alone that, that came from – most likely came from Guapo and all – anyway, neither here nor there. But we're going to get a lot of correspondence about this and I, I, we'll figure out a way that you can send it all to, to Vin. Send it that would to be me. Great. Um, but it may get to the point where I actually need SaneBox. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. It's getting the intern's blood out of the carpet. But second to that, the answer is email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't need an answer. But what if you could just press a magic button? And never see those time wasting emails again. Well, that's exactly what Sanebox does. With just a few clicks, Sanebox automatically gets your email under control and filters out all of the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whatever email client you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole where you can banish senders you never want to hear from again and sane reminders for sending email reminders to your future self see how sanebox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free 2 week trial visit sanebox.com/dingo today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit that's s a n e b o x.com slash dingo, D-I-N-G-O. We thank SaneBox for advertising on The Remnant.
1: Do you remember The Sopranos, the Phil Leotardo, the line? The, the, one of those gangsters, Leotardo, he gives a whole... I
0: remember Phil Leotardo, He yeah, gives a whole thing yeah, yeah.
1: about how these idiots at Ellis Island goes, they named us after leotards, you know? This, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> The whole angry diatribe about how they disrespected his family by naming them that.
0: Well, I was going to say, in the origins of this is that um, um, the Godfather, right, yeah. has a... Corleone is uh, a town in Italy. And the, the idea right. that and,
1: he's named after a town in Italy, which, you know, he's... Sure, some people were probably named after a town in Italy, but not by Ellis Island officials. I mean, our yeah. last name is Kanata, with an A. How it got to be an O, I have no idea. But you can kind of see an A going to an O. I mean, that, that
0: That happens. Um, poor penmanship is probably responsible for more name changes. so this is a you're probably you're a better person than a lot of people have had on here but I have no idea if you're the right person to ask this Um, I kind of feel like and I have nothing to base this on except totally anecdotal impressionistic things but I feel like we've had a proliferation of last names in the last hundred years there shouldn't be Right. Why, why, why would you have so many more last names than you used to? Maybe we, maybe we haven't, but it, it just feels like we have. In, in like Vietnam,
1: 60% of the country has the same last name, Nguyen. You know, they're all, uh, and it used to be the American last name was Smith, right? And everyone, now right. it's hard to find a Smith. Uh, no, I No, obviously the the most obvious answer is immigration, right? And immigration from all all kinds of parts of the world and and people changing their own names i mean you know this is the idea a hundred years ago you get to to create your own name your own identity you get to name yourself you know what you want and um that's you know you can't do that now but uh yeah identities are really fluid so but i don't know any other theory of why uh, apart from just the vast proliferation of various ethnic groups coming into the country
0: yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this. I, I this is this is a quarter baked notion, but it just came into my head, and I wanted to get it out there. We'll see if anybody has something interesting to say about it in the in the feedback. Um, so, what's your take on the uh, general state of the academy today, from the vantage point of your fancy ivory tower?
1: It's it's looking
0: roses, Jonah. Everything's
1: mm-hmm. everything's going great. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been in in academia for seventeen years now, uh-huh. um, so I kind of know it pretty well. Know a lot of people. It, a bunch of things are going on. I mean, one of the things that's going on, and the pandemic is only going to accelerate it, is that more and more private liberal arts schools, small schools, are going to go out of business. Cool. There's, and we see that. If when I moved up to Boston, I didn't realize how many colleges there were in the Boston area. Schools you'd never heard of before: Mount Ida, Becker, Newbury, Curry. Um, it's that's weird because in Spinal Tap they
0: say it's not a big college. <laughs>
1: soon it won't be soon it'll be like one or two uh Uh, the other thing is that the uh the boston gig has been canceled
0: i wouldn't worry about it though it's not a big college town
1: but and some of these have already gone out of business and i think some of them some more will uh there's sort of a magic number in terms of what your endowment is and if your endowment is below that um you're going to be in serious trouble so i think that's one of the things so you're going to see more and more schools closing up shop uh, the other thing that's happening is for us. I'm a history professor. Uh, history has had the largest decline in made declared majors of any other field, and most liberal arts and humanities are seeing similar declines. And, and STEM obviously is is making up the difference. So I, you know, we we're on a hiring freeze. We have a hard time hiring anyone else. Our, our department is getting smaller. I think you're going to see subtle shifts away from the humanities more and more. I mean, humanities doesn't bring in any money, so and administrators love money right they love mm. this is why coke has been so successful you wonder you know how how why are there all these coke institutes all throughout colleges it's because the, most administrators don't care where the money comes from right they mm. uh, it's now they're getting pushback from the left to uncoke the campus so that's going on so that's a second thing that's going on the decline of humanities and liberal arts which i think is very sad and and kind of troubling and the third thing is, you know, politically what's going on, ideologically with the the woke stuff. And I, um, you know, there's a book I reviewed a few years ago by what was it Dunn Dunn and Shields? Do you know these guys? They're conservative political scientists. Re- yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I reviewed it for the Standard, and they went and they actually interviewed conservative. Professors, because oddly enough, there still are a number of us around. And the picture that they gave in the book uh, was a sort of a different one than you would get from just reading conservative blogs. That you know, most conservative press professors enjoy their careers, um, succeed fairly well, and make their way, you know, as best as they can in this environment. I always tell people that academia is not as bad as you think it is from what you would read in some ways, but much worse in other ways and now we're kind of seeing the much worse which is that the 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 politicization is getting baked into the institutions it's becoming institutionalized you're seeing the increase of uh you know diversity deans and you're seeing you know starting to see things like diversity oaths you know you want a job with us please give us you know 500 word statement of what you've done in your career to further diversity uh they're gonna you're gonna start to see more of that for promotions and tenure cases uh more and more job searches you know that's one of the debates why aren't there more conservatives in academia and you know is there overt discrimination or is it something more hidden and mostly I think it's more hidden you look at the look at the course of the um, job offerings you know mm-hmm. you can define a job offering in a way that excludes someone who's more interested in traditional political history or traditional politics you know you know we want someone who's in who, it's social justice you know that's coming up I was on a job search uh, in another department last year and Social justice was the central thing in there. That's that's a whole different discussion. That one day I'll 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 tell you about the the whole job search. (laughs) It's very depressing, but that's the way. So it's slowly but surely. I mean, it's not you know we're not oppressed minority. I you know I sort of get along pretty well. I you know but slowly but surely I think you're going to see fewer and fewer people who are you know center right or even moderate. And and the other thing that's going on is the the death of old liberals. From you know the more that. Old class, not classical liberals, but old kind of ADA style liberal. Uh, Vital academics. center:
0: Arthur Schlesinger, Clinton Rossiter. Yeah, yeah. and, and
1: yeah. what did, what what did they like? They liked um, sort of free exchange of ideas, free speech. Um, they are sort of going by the wayside, and they're being replaced by younger professors who aren't so keen on some of these liberal ideas, who aren't so interested in hearing vast, diverse viewpoints. They're much, they're much more driven by social justice issues. And that's something I'm seeing. You know, A lot of these older liberal professors are leaving, and they're the ones who are interested in hearing more voices and keeping some kind of intellectual diversity.
0: Yeah, I mean, Alan Brinkley. I mean, Alan Brinkley was... A solidly liberal guy, but man, he was a great writer and a great historian. And um, he was my, I mean
1: you knew him a, He was you know. he was my professor. I, I was yeah. he was sort of my secondary advisor and I you know, I was TA'd for him. I knew him pretty well and he was a great guy. He was he was no moderate, he was definitely a left liberal. But I, I went to I went to Columbia in the nineties and we had a tremendous array of, of people of different viewpoints. I mean, one of my friends from grad school is now the deputy director of the Hoover Institute. Now, we mm-hmm. had a lot of people, different viewpoints, and we had a lot, of, a lot of my liberal friends from Columbia were really interested in conservatism, history of conservatism, uh, and it fostered that kind of intellectual community in the 90s, which I don't think really existed, and Brinkley was a part of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it's funny, because I, I think that the, 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 un, the unstated, the um, I can't remember the word you used for it, but the, um, the sort of the role of shibboleths in all of this is huge. Um, I remember back when you were telling me, and we'll cut this out if this is something, a story you can't have repeated, um, when you were defending your dissertation and the guy in your dissertation committee, or gal, I don't remember which, but some professor said, well, first of all, I just want to say that this is really well written. <laughs> it reads it reads like good journalism or something like that, and your heart sank because that was the worst thing you, a hardcore lefty academic could say is that it's clear and, and and engageable prose which is you're not what you're supposed to do do i have that about that's right?
1: exactly right And i know exactly it was a woman yeah exactly a woman on the left who's you know who's to, but yeah that's the biggest backhanded compliment that you can give someone and say you write well you know, which means, oh, it's kind of facile and you know superficial. You know, you need to put some more jargon in there and and make it a little harder to read, and in that way, it'll be much more academic and much more
0: um, much more right. sophisticated. You sound more like Homie Baba, right? Which is, and th- this was like, uh, it's funny. I got some blowback. I had a, a, a this guy Kyle Harper on, who's a classic. Uh, r- historian of ancient Rome and ancient Greece and all that kind of stuff on the other day and we were talking about Gnosticism and I got some blowback that we weren't talking about it in the right way because Gnosticism really means knowledge, Gnosis, you know, secret knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And I've written a lot about this. We just didn't get into it with them. But academia is full of that kind of Gnosticism, right, where you create these walls around certain guilds or certain power centers and if you don't know the right chivalis, if you don't know the right words and the right way to talk about things, you don't get included. And that's been my theory about, like, the um, the discrimination against Asian kids at, at Harvard or MIT. I guess it was Harvard. Um, it's not that Harvard is bigoted against Asian kids. It's that these first-generation Asian kids from Stuyvesant and Brock Science or wherever, their parents want them to get jobs. Their parents want them to get good – I mean, there's like normal Jewish Italian immigrant stuff, right? And they don't drench these kids in being able to talk about intersectionality and, and social justice stuff. And so the interviews, when they, when they do badly in these interviews or in their essays, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with discriminating against them because they're Asian. It, it's discriminating against, discriminating against them because they're bourgeois. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know? No, and that's and, and our my school again. I, why I think it works in its own way is that most of the kids, these immigrant kids, ethnic kids, first generation college kids they want to get jobs they you know they want to learn they're very respectful uh, but for the most part they're not buying into what their professors you know this so the kind of the social justice woke stuff because they're interested in more mundane things which is getting ahead in the world and succeeding the article that goes back to the shibboleth thing i don't know if you read it there was an best article i read about academia recently it was called ideal laundering it was in the wall hmm. street journal and it was about how academia launders ideas how they create these kind of new terminologies and then create a whole substructure surrounding it like academic like fat studies for instance you know you create an academic journal about it and then you create a conference over it and then eventually you get job listings you know on this subfield and this way you create you know you you can get a theory, no matter how bogus, and you can create a whole substructure or academic substructure around it that will allow more people to join in, more people want to get into that, right, because you can get published. And, you know, so many of the, like, wo- uh, whiteness studies is an example. Mm-hmm. He, I think the author used fat studies as a way, you know, how does this become a thing? And he kind of goes through and talks about how, it, um, how that can be, uh, lo- the idea can be laundered to become a mainstream academic idea.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny because some, um... Remember John Miller? It's almost twenty years ago now. He did that piece for NR about um, how they couldn't, like, there were this, again. This is twenty years ago. Major universities were rejecting money for military history chairs. Oh or, yeah, or, that professors? that was
1: a controversial article because there were a lot of military historians got kind of pushed back against against him uh-huh. because oddly enough, the military history has kind of had a slight little blip uh, upwards recently. Has it? Yeah. I think there, it. There's like oh, I think Ohio State, I want to say. It's a little node of military history. Um, yeah, so I think that the timing of his article, I think he was, he wrote that right when, you know, deep down in academia you were starting to actually see some more military historians coming up. But yeah, no, I remember the article.
0: Because there was that, I mean, was it, Stephen Ambrose gave, I think it was Stephen Ambrose. It was one of those guys, right, gave like a million dollars to University of Wisconsin and they get re- declined it. Yeah, you know.
1: Well, that, because again, not every. I, I remember when I first came to UMass, and uh, one of my colleagues said, "So, you know, if you were going to recommend, what, uh, you know, our next job search, what field should we, should we, uh, should we uh, find a professor in?" And my answer was military history, and my colleague turned white. You, know, you can just see him <laughs> and turn white and then start to see the little bit, right? Like military, evil, violent, all these kinds of things. So, yeah, no, that's, that's certainly there. But remember, academia is a fairly large place. There's lots of room and in, in lots of universities to kind of um, to make your way. So you can find, if you look, military historians who are still making their way in the profession.
0: So uh, uh, Irvin Crystal used to say that there was nothing wrong with America that a good recession wouldn't fix. Um, I think the 2008-2009 crisis proved that wrong, or 2007-2008, whatever the date is. Um, Although I would often point out to people that there was a major spike after that of face tattoo removals, (laughs) which is a good sign, I thought. Uh, But, uh, you know, you're talking about all these univers- all these schools going under and and all of this you know uh, path dependence for all the woke stuff and all the rest as someone who's got just by happenstance a 17 year old daughter is going to be going to school going to college soon enough um, you would think that some of these schools as a survival mechanism would start jettisoning jettisoning some of the nonsense I mean Steve Hayward a mutual friend of ours uh you know he he pointed out that like one of the drivers of some of the feminist controversy stuff on campus is uh, and i don't want to mischaracterize his position but a lot of some of it in some cases is fomented by a need to get kids to take women's studies cuz very few people want to take women's studies. Uh, and I say this as someone who actually took quite a bit of women's studies classes because I'm. They forced you to, didn't they? Yeah, and it was part of the curriculum oh. as, as, you know, the Rosa Parks of gender integration. And um, so. <laughs> I'm honored um, to be here with you. <laughs> um, But if the choices. I mean, it's like when Steve, Hay- when Steve Hayes, not Hayward, when Steve Hayes and I were starting the dispatch. We had all these sort of questions that, that we, we dealt with about how we were going to deal with certain things, and and Steve always wanted to err on the side of a maximum transparency and maximum ethical behavior and all these kinds of things. And I'm in favor of transparency and good ethics, but I would always say, look, in principle, I would like to do that. The only other principle that matters more to me is existing in the first place, <laughs> and so if if there are things that we can't – that if we're forced to do, we won't be able to exist. We have to figure out a different way to go. And it seems to me that if your choice of a school is to all of a sudden triple down on traditional liberal arts and STEM stuff to stay open, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't the board make you do that?
1: <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean I think some of these schools, it's too, it's too late in the game for them to change. The, the economics of it no matter what they do it's not going to make them stay afloat the other thing is i mean I, I think i've always thought that there's room out there for more uh, for one of better uh, hillsdales right they're mm-hmm. not not quite identical to hillsdale but wouldn't it be nice if somewhere you know in like the dc suburbs or exurbs you could create a liberal arts institution you get a lot of good people teaching you could get you could get parents who would send their kids there or or St. John's you know kind of on mm-hmm. that model um and a lot of it's just a lack of imagination let's let's, let's be honest and I can say this: you don't have to cut this out. University administrators are some of the least imaginative people you will you will find out there. <laughs> the hell, you say? Um, you know, I, have t- I have tenure. Oh, I can sort of say that. Uh, yeah, they're not going to go and say, "Oh man, maybe we should try this." If it's not in the Chronicle of Higher Education, you know, they're not going to. And, and can you imagine if some administrators, you know, wanted to do that? Can you imagine the pushback? Oh, this is a reactionary, right wing thing. What are you trying to? do with our college? You know. What about ethnic studies and women's studies? You, know, you can't do that. Um, so I think most administrators, <laughs> one of the colleges around here that went under, um, the president said that a few years before the board said, if you want to survive, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. The president didn't do it, and it went under. You know, why he didn't do it, I don't know. The board had told him this is kind of what you need to do to survive. It was focusing on some other professional programs. Now, they're, they're largely unimaginative people. A lot of them are also are not humanities people. A lot mm-hmm. of people are business people. They're people in STEM. They don't, um, you know, they don't really quite understand what's going on in the liberal arts world. And the people who are advising them are the people who don't want to do this, who, who want to keep the the woke stuff.
0: All right, so um, we could do a lot more about this, and we'll have you back on to do a lot more about this, but I want to change gears again because um, I don't get to talk to you that much. No. Um So uh, you've, you know, sent yourself into your own elbow-like exile from the world that we used to both share of think tankery, conservative stuff, um, but y- you you follow from afar. Um, uh have you followed much this new Ajun Vermuel, Sourabh Amari, R.R. Reno, the post-liberal integralist Catholic crowd, common good capitalism, um, and what do you make of it?
1: Well, so my current project, I'm writing a book about Catholic history, so I'm kind of immersed in American Catholic history. Uh, I subscribe to First Things, I like First Things. Uh, the integral thing I, I, I don't buy into, I, you know, we've, we've kind of been there before, you know who this reminds me of? Brent Bozell, yeah, senior, yeah. you know, I've seen the future, it's Franco's Spain, um, <laughs> it didn't work out so well, right? And no, I, I, I still am a classic liberal, I'm a John Courtney Murray kind of guy, uh, I know that there's problems out there, I know there's problems for religion, that religious people are facing pushbacks and there's dangers up ahead, I think all that stuff is right. Um, I haven't read Patrick Deneen's book, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll sort of be careful about saying stuff about it, but from what I've read and heard about it, you know, he presents some good critiques of liberalism, but the real question is, what comes next? You know, right. what do you replace it with? And there's no good answer, right? And and I think that's sort of where we're at. Um, you know, I think conservatives are now, it's it's good to find out where the, you know, the trouble spots are in liberalism, where the weak spots, where the danger spots are, but uh, you know, I think you know we're all we, we were raised in this this period of kind of liberal pluralism, right? Where there's and America has always been really good at that. I mean, I'm spending a lot of time studying the 1940s, 1950s, early 1960s, which was the high point of religion in America. I mean, mm-hmm. It was a, the civic this idea of a civic religion, and. Um, you know, I don't want to, we're not there now, obviously, and I don't know if we'll ever get back to a place like that, but that's sort of the model that I think we should be thinking about rather than this idea of this is the integral, integralist idea. I am, I mean, I am, I will say sort of increasingly sympathetic to some more, I don't want to say corporatist ideas, but the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, Catholic teaching allow, is not libertarian. Um, you know, I think, uh in this day and age I'm, i was never a complete i mean i was a libertarian probably in college right that's the time the great time of libertarianism the golden is
0: like, age of libertarianism exactly <laughs> um
1: and you know but the problem is every time i see a friend of mine sent me an article by a professor david blight who's a yale historian and he wrote one of these articles about you know a, a crisis is a you know, a bad thing to waste, like how we could create the new deal during this pandemic, a new, new deal. So every time I read one of those articles, I kind of creep back to libertarianism, you -hmm. know, when I see, I see this, but I think we do have to kind of, the reality is big government is here. It's been here for a long while. We've all been, you know, we've all been born and raised in this. And I am kind of a person realizes that we got to kind of put that towards more, maybe more conservative ends. Uh, I don't want to create a huge state. I don't want to create a state that's tied to religion in any way. Um, so yeah, so those are my kind of random, random no, no, thoughts. No, no, that on works. This. I mean,
0: I, I, we don't need to get too deep in the weeds in it because people have heard enough from me about it. But it is basically like no one read, I mean, which most, which which is true of most people. No one read Triumph in the 1970s, and <laughs> whenever, whenever Bozell was doing that thing, and think that all of a sudden they've discovered this brand new argument when it is almost like it's been plagiarized from these arguments that came before And you know I remember we you know back in the days when you were still around Washington there was that craze I wrote that piece in the um, Wall Street Journal that helped me lend my wife um, c- pushing back on some of this 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 whole idea we need to create, an alternative conservative culture and like get rid of Hollywood, have our own Hollywood, have our own movie studios, have our own universities and Contra, you know, not what you're saying about Hillsdale notwithstanding uh, or more Hillsdale's notwithstanding. You know, my response was, I would rather us take back, I would rather have more conservatives at Harvard than more Hillsdales, even though, look, I like Hillsdale or, you know, they used to like me. Um, but, uh, there was this, you know, and I remember, but I remember Irving Kristol uh, at one of the brown bag things at AI or something like, that. where are you going to hire the people to run this thing? You know, we're talking about conservative universities and conservative, and I can just tell you as a fact that, you know, and they're well aware of it at Fox, is that once you get down below like the executive producer and the host level, most of them are just basically run-of-the-mill sort of, you know. I mean, there's some conservatives, but a lot of them are just sort of liberal, wanna-be in television types, you know. And um, the idea I'd, that you can fill the bureaucracy and in, in corporate America with with conservatives who are going to use sort of, and, and I know what you mean by not corporatism and all that, but there's but a my, huge staffing problem.
1: Right. My 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 theory about schools. I don't want to create conservative colleges, I, I'd like to create colleges that are kind of like St. John's, right, that are right. geared towards liberal arts, humanities, um, that have, you know, there's a wide array of, of conservative, center-right, center-left, moderate types who would, you know, happily work at a place like that that was devoted yep. to it. Um, but yeah, no, the, the staffing issue, you can't create... You can't create your own alternate world no I think that's true. The other thing to remember about this whole idea is yeah, anyone who thinks that you know merging church and state, uh, I'm Catholic, uh, but look at the look at the bishops right and look at what's yeah. been going on in the last 10, 20 years. These are not um, you know, these are not profiles in courage for the most part. No, there there are a couple that i like and, and know a little bit but um you know the catholic church is not the most well-run place i've been dealing with the vatican a little bit nevertheless this is not you know it's it's sort of like dealing with the 19th century papal states <laughs> uh, you know you have to send in i had to make a copy of my uh, diploma in order to go do research at the vatican i actually you know, need to show and i have to write a letter from my supervisor a, a friend of mine said uh, he, you know, he needs to go do research. And they said, but I'm my supervisor. And they said, oh, just write a letter for yourself. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want to see the church kind of involved in politics, like running things like that. I'd like to see the church run the church a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've, we've kind of been down that road, the papal states, Franco, Spain. The, the thing about Franco, Spain is look what happened to Spain after Franco left. You know, look, look at the state of the Catholic church. If you think this is going to strengthen uh, strengthen the church, tying it closer to to the government, it's the opposite. The opposite is going to happen.
0: I remember Cato Byrne. I hope I'm not going to get in any trouble for this. I I love Cato Byrne passionately. Um, I'm pretty sure she helped with the conversion of Newt Gingrich to Catholicism. And... uh, and I remember her saying, "You know, but my one concern is like five minutes after he converts, he's going to have an eight-point plan for how to reorganize the Catholic Church." But to be honest, you know, you know, it's not my lane. So, but there could be some. Your point's well taken. I'll just leave it there. But
1: um, but, the, but the But I think this is maybe where we differ. The the you know the the Amari French debates. I've, I've read them. I'm kind of in the middle. I think in between the two. I don't. I don't like the. De- I didn't like the debate because it seemed like a kind of a stage debate, right? Like mm-hmm. an attention grabbing debate. Like, you know, I'm going to attack someone in order to get a little bit of attention for myself and for my book. And um, but I think the the criticisms that you see from First Things and others, I think, are worth paying attention to. And I think uh, you know the conservative movement needs to kind of deal with some of these ideas going forward. Uh,
0: yeah, so I mean, I, I, we're gonna. I mean, we don't have time for to get into all our disagreements about about some of this stuff, um, and I don't want to get you in trouble. I, I
1: brought in first things. I knew that was going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I think uh, Rusty Reno has largely beclowned himself, and um, and when you are marshaling this idea that is based upon, I think as Kevin Williamson put it, the support of about two hundred twenty somethings yeah. living within fifteen miles of the uh, Sella corridor. Um, that this somehow is going to be this massive movement yeah. that you're going to get buy-in from, you know, non-Catholic evangelical Christians. Never mind everybody else is insane, and um, and you know the second that that Reno is, is part of a movement that was intended to defend the uh, performative vulgarianism of Donald Trump, that I represented the decadence of American conservatism in, in Washington uh he kind of lost any any good faith you know uh, benefit the doubt from me uh, you know you cannot you know whatever you think about me and my women's prison movie jokes and whatever you know and and that's not even what he was referring to. he was referring to my defense of liberal democratic capitalism and the American founding uh, he said that was this proof of my decadence and uh, and then he went on and on and on about defending the New Deal and all of that um, it just seems to me that, it's um, as as a serious intellectual project. It's really a great example of the ability of power to corrupt people. Yeah, um, and I'm not saying that you don't have to agree with this or you know whatever. I mean, mm. we'll stipulate this is my own view. But um, when Sorab, who I like Sorab personally, and um, I think sometimes he does great stuff, and he was great when he was a defender of liberalism, uh, but when Sorab says that in the present climate that Donald Trump is a force of social cohesion. Uh, This is just a sign of how trying to bend the movement, and we've seen this from lots of people, they're trying to manufacture, whether you call it nationalism or post-liberalism or whatever, manufacture an intellectual cathedral or construct that rationalizes and contextualizes their apologies for, for Trumpism. And I just think it can't be done.
1: Right, I I think a lot of these people. This is sort of like the argument against evangelicals, like. You know why are evangelicals supporting Trump? And well, there's perfectly legitimate reasons for them. But the problem that eva- some evangelicals get into is there's no reason then to proclaim him as the greatest Christian ever, right? Right. And, and to bring him up there, there's there's practical political reasons for evangelicals to support Trump, um, but very little reason for to bring him up on stage and and you know put him out as a as a great Christian and a great evangelical.
0: Yeah, uh, no. I, 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 yeah. and this is a constant theme of this podcast: is yeah. that transactional justifications for supporting Trump are inherently just, you know, defensible. I mean, you can have an argument because that's a cost-benefit thing. Right. But the part of the problem is sort of we are wired to think that the person that we've declared our leader must be also a good person. Right. And that seduces a lot of people into making terrible arguments.
1: Right. The, the other point is, I think, and here we might disagree a bit, but I think that they're what Trumpism, not Trump himself, but Trumpism shows, is that there is something missing in the conservative movement, something wrong that had kind of run its course a bit, right? That conserv- the, the conservative movement, the Reagan movement in the 70s, 80s, 90s, had kind of run its course uh, for a variety of reasons. That doesn't mean it was thrown out, but it had become kind of stale. It's, now, this is from my outsider perspective, you know? I am I know the move, you know, I, I've worked down there, I know a lot of you, but I'm sort of out, out of it. And, you know, there's this always some going back to this nostalgic period. All we need to do is kind of recreate the great Reagan coalition. We just need to, you know, do the fusionism again. And, And that wasn't working. And, you know, I think conservatism had become highly ideological. It, it, um, not ideological it is an ideology but you know the, the idea that the conservatives were ideological there's like a checklist that you had to yep, believe in right and if you want to get entrance this is kind of like the the mirror of, of what was in academia you want to get in here are the 10 things you need to believe and i think especially by the bush administration this had kind of not worked you know, I think the Iraq war was hugely damaging to the conservative movement in ways I don't think the movement has really come to grips with um, you know I think you know you had you had Bush who was and a lot of people are talking about small government where for limited government the Bush administration was not exactly the most limited government Republican administration you know you had even the Reagan administration was not really uh, had expanded government by this time so I think something needs to be reworked in the conservative movement and I think that's what you kind of see um, is it down the the road that rusty reno wants to take it no i I don't think so but i think you know finding the weaknesses where where conservatism wasn't working where it needed to kind of readjust to the new reality of the 21st century as opposed to the reality of the 1970s and 1980s which is what conservative was, was doing a lot it was kind of reacting to problems that had occurred 30 or 40 years earlier um, so I, I mean, to me, you know,
0: I, I have no disagreement. Yeah. I mean, th- that is like the reformicon. That is yeah, there are a lot, exactly. you know. I mean, Yuval and and Strain and Ramesh and lots of people were working on this stuff. And the the I mean, I don't want to get back in the greatest hits territory, but the only thing that I find extremely frustrating is that the people who were basically making the argument that you're making were shouted down by the Wall Street Journal by, uh, so the Mark Levin types, um, by a lot of different, you know, even the Hannity's and whatnot as, uh, you know, deviating from the true faith of Reaganism. And then the second there was, i mean, talk about the corrupting nature of power. And then the second there was a new game in town that actually, uh, pulled people's loyalties, they went with them. Yeah. And if you, if people had listened to people like you, you know, or people like Yuval or Ramesh or whoever, yeah. fifteen years ago, maybe things wouldn't have gotten to the point where people would be willing to take this sort of Hail Mary on on Trumpism because their actual needs would have been addressed responsibly.
1: Yeah. But no, no arg- no argument there. And and you know, we talked years ago, I remember you we were talking about national review and then some of these voices that were coming out at like Mark Levin and it was this very shrill, um, again, you know, you're either, you're on, you're on the on with Reagan or you're not. And, uh, no, that was hugely problematic. And a lot of these people have jumped to the, the, the Trump train. I, I
0: no arguments yeah. here. I mean, the only other thing I would add, and we can get off this is that, um, I think that one of the things that, that really steered conservatism wrong So you're talking about a checklist was the second you flipped from um for politicians right we're not talking about eggheads we're talking about politicians the second you flip from persuasion to purity you are by definition locking people out and if you go back and you listen to reagan's speeches he very rarely you know went crazy with the theoretical or the ideological stuff very rarely talked about republicans and democrats he told stories and when you tell stories, you attract people. And uh, because people f- see themselves in the story, the second you say, I am the purest, and anybody who disagrees with me, even 5% is less pure, they're, therefore less good, you're, by definition, excluding people and making everything much more brittle. And brittle things are strong until they break, you know. But, that's anyway.
1: that's true politically and intellectually, too. That's, that's true for intellectual movements, and it's true for political parties. Uh, and I think, in in both senses that was happening, right? The the, the purity tests. Are you, you know? And we used to we used to make fun. Remember in the early 90s someone's a squish. So and so is a yeah, squish. Yeah. So that was yeah. so the worst thing you could say about someone is that they were a squish. But um, but yeah, no, there needs to be more. I mean, remember who was Ronald Reagan's running mate in 1976 when he ran? You know, he named a running mate as Richard Schweiker. He was a liberal republican from pennsylvania i mean reagan's much of reagan's career was he you know even as governor he was very flexible in terms of what um of, of how he governed i mean i think he always had his principles but in terms of you know how he actually governed he was um he was motivated by what was happening on the scene and i think conservatism and right-wing politics needs to be a bit more flexible in terms of how they approach issues going forward uh, i remember the. Uh, not to bust on the Bush administration, but this idea, you know, America is a center-right country. How many times have we heard that? How many times did you hear that in the 90s and 2000s in Washington? We're a center-right country. The truth is that that wasn't true, and it hasn't been true for a while. We're not a center-left country. We're kind of a strange hybrid. The average American is, do you remember Ben Wattenberg's average American in the 70s? The Dayton, Dayton, Catholic Dayton housewife, or blue-collar housewife. Now, I'm not sure who the, the center of America in politics is today, but it's not, you know, it's not a center-right person. It's it's not a Bernie supporter either. And I think Americans have a very, uh, against our view, a very strange ideological view. They can be for socialized medicine and be pro, you know, pro uh, anti-abortion, or um, you know, they, they can be for socialized medicine and against free tuition. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, and I think adapting to that is what people on the right need to kind of start to think about
0: all right then um, <laughs> we did we did we did no um real memory lane stuff no memory lane. Compl- yeah i mean um I had lots of good irving stories yeah no, so, so as people who listen to this know uh irving was a huge influence on me but i didn't know him that well you know i met him a few times and had been in the room with a bunch but you actually worked for him Uh um and for those of you who don't know, Irving was Bill Kristol's father, um, and he was the sort of the Er Neocon um, back when Neocon really had more to do with domestic policy than foreign policy. But we can talk about that another time. Um, what did you? Uh, um,
1: what was he like? Irving was a great guy. I um, I really I really liked him. Uh, it's one of those things. It's kind of like with your grandparents, you know, you wish you'd had them. You, There're more questions you want to ask them and yeah. I wish when when I was around I had I would have lunch with them occasionally when I would come down to Washington. I wish I had more lunches with them and wish I talked more about them. Um he was uh, uh It's funny, when I first started, a lot of people were scared of him. He was kind of an old, somewhat grouchy guy, and he had a lot of young people working there who were like, Oh, it's Irving, I can't. I think one of the reasons he liked me is I was never scared of him. And I'd always go and joke with him. And um, one time, one of my jobs was to type his Wall Street Journal columns back in the Uh. old days. He would write it out longhand, and I'd type it out. And it was an article about multiculturalism. And he had some, like, you know, blacks, Hispanics. orientals and indians so i went up and i said irving just a suggestion you might want to change orientals to asians and he looks at me sitting in his desk he looks at me he goes all right but i'm keeping indians um, you know he's not doing native americans and that, that was irving and you know and, and we had that kind of relationship i could kind of talk to him about it i mean irving was you know, one of the things to understand Irving least like my the way of understanding is he was very bourgeois, right? That mm-hmm. you read a lot about this when B, uh, you know, when his wife B Crystal, her obituaries, the importance of being bourgeois and bourgeois values and how central they were to, to Western society and to American society. I mean, the first thing he would ask me whenever I would see him after I worked for him is, "Are you married yet? Are you yeah. married yet?" And that was the first question. Uh, that idea, the importance of these, you know. F- family values but in, in the real way the other great story i'll tell you is and, and you might have heard this because there's another there's a prominent conservative who has the same exact story i am um, I, I where in the summertime i usually dress in shorts i dress pretty casually especially in dc and i would come up to ai visit jonah and one day i'm i'm waiting for the elevator ai the elevator door opens and there's irving he looks at me he looks down at my shorts he looks up at me, he shakes his head, he doesn't say a word, and he walks on. <laughs> and Charles Murray has the same story. Exact
0: same story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it was, he just shook his head, he didn't say anything, and he walked, and he walked away. Um, yeah, and, and he was also, I mean, he was great with young people as well. I mean, I told you people were, some people were scared of him, but he was, he really liked having young people around and he really liked the whole culture of the public interest was so unusual you know we just sat in this little horseshoe and and read all day and we read and talked about stuff and a lot of smart people working there and, and the national interest too a lot of our friends were working at the national interest um and also he, you know he he was a pragmatic guy in a lot of ways um and that that i got from him as well i remember you know talking about social security one day i think some republican was talking about privatizing social security and he said why would you want to do that now leave social security alone this is just don't do that um he was uh the other thing about him is well,
0: part of his thing about social security was that Welfare is corrupting to people's character, but not when you start giving it to them at sixty-five. Yeah. right. <laughs> but it was
1: very practical, you know. I mean, it was not an ideological argument about about that about that issue. And it's you know, it's also about what happens when you what would happen if you took Social Security away. You know, what would that what effect would that have on society? And I think that would have a disruptive uh, effect. He was um, he was very bourgeois. The other thing is, you know, he moved moved from left to right, but he kind of didn't change very much. And I I, I talked to Bill about this once and he said, that was exactly right. He says, Irving didn't Change as a person. And, and a lot of his ideas didn't, you know, his personality and the way he looked at the world didn't change. Um, there was much less change. If you read his articles from the 40s to 50s, even though he wasn't a conservative back then, you could still see the Irving Crystal of the 70s, 80s, and 90s in, in a lot of those writings. But remember, he's the guy who said of McCarthyism, he goes, Remember the, remember the great line? Yeah. You know, the,
0: 1952 in the, the commentary.
1: commentary. Yeah. He said something to the effect of, you know, the, the American people know that McCarthyism, that McCarthy is against communism. Of his critics They know no such thing Or something like right. that Right and, and that was You know There's a lot to that statement And there was a lot For a, a liberal to say In the 1950s To say that He took a lot of heat uh,
0: um, But Since I was going to Start a different thing About Irving But Just because There is this Which I forgive listeners If they've already tuned out I forgive listeners If they don't know What I'm talking about But There is In the There is in the Fever swamps of the right, um, and the fever swamps of the left. And you saw some of the left-wing stuff come back to the fore during the Gulf War thing that has this idea that Irving Kristol, because he was a former Trotskyite, never let go of his Trotskyism and was in fact the bacillus that brought in the disease – of exporting revolution around the globe into neoconservatism and it is what and so that right wingness right right wing foreign policy became de facto trotskyite because of irving crystal this is um i want to use the correct term bat <laughs> crazy or, or correct me
1: that's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, if you look at Irving's foreign policy writings, he was a realist. He was like a yeah. foreign policy realist. That's the, the best way. He to, wanted to get out of NATO. Yeah, <laughs> these are not. Um, this, but for a while in the 2000s, everyone was a neocon. You know, every, Anyone who was right of, I don't know, Susan Collins was a neocon. Because it was the worst thing you could say about someone. Um, and did you see and, uh, Andrew basevich edited this uh this new book about American conservatism, yeah, yeah, yeah right. And he has something about neocon. Not including any neocons in my book because they're bad. And then he has a thing about Irving. You know, he includes an essay from Irving. Um, yeah, no, his foreign policy is nothing about. You know, it's not. It wasn't Wilsonian in any in any shape or form. He was very realist. Very kind of realist, almost Kissingerian in some
0: ways. Yeah, no, and um, anyway, it's an important thing to bring up because there are an enormous number of crazy people who have these conspiracy theories about Irving that don't make any sense about Irving and make a little sense about Bill, but are still grotesquely unfair to Bill, you know? Um, And this is the point, you know, every time I have continuity on, I try to hammer home this is that, uh, you know, if the idea is that being a former communist Means that you are now not an authentic conservative, um, or even a former Jewish communist. Then I think seven of the ten names of the original National Review masthead have have got to go. Um, you've got, um, you know, I mean, uh, J- James Burnham was, you know, Irving and and who was the other guy with him in the alcove? It was. It was Marty Lipset. It was Nat 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 Laser. I don't remember. And the, there's another guy. Yeah. yeah. But it, these were like nebbishy Jewish kids going to a free college in the 30s. Meanwhile, James Burnham was the editor of The Daily Worker and Lenin's translator and literary agent. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. I, I think Max Eastman, who was also on the founding, founding editors of Network yeah. Review. And you just go through the list and it's – Frank Meyer was a communist. Frank follow-up. Meyer, major communist. Yeah. And – And so, so much of the definition about, first of all, neoconservatism being definitionally having something to do with this vestigial Marxist train of thought, you have to basically throw away much of modern conservatism if you're going to do that. And, um, but there is this weird sort of persistent belief in it. And then I think one of the things that killed the conversation about neoconservatism was the Iraq war, because then it became explicitly about foreign policy when that wave of neocons came in later, anyway. but That's at least my view. And-
1: I was teach last week. I taught um, Haynes and Claire's book about anti-comm about Venona, yeah. and it's hard. It, it's a hard discussion for students. It, this is these are debates that they don't quite understand, even they're reading it. Why are they so? upset about this? Why are they so passionate about it? And I told them, you know, I said, a, a lot of these conservatives, you know, migrated from the left and they knew communists. They knew about right. communism. So when they- came
0: Whitaker to- Chambers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: they, they knew this and, and this was real. There was a, a, I'll tell you a funny story about Nat Laser, who was, who just passed away this earlier, earlier this year or late last year, a great, yeah. a great guy. Um, and I was at a conference at Harvard. I was sitting in the back and this woman gets up, a historian, well-known historian who's writing, who wrote a book about Lillian Hellman, and it was all about mm-hmm. how Lillian Hellman was wronged by these evil men like William F. Buckley and Nathan Glazer. And she's telling about you know how terrible they were to her and how wrong they were to her. And Nat's in the audience, and he gets up at the end. and He goes, uh, "Excuse me, um, you know." some of us in the 50s were, were kind of concerned about communism and, and we didn't, you know, we were concerned about Hellman's kind of pro-Stalin, pro-Soviet views and this was something that the historians just couldn't deal with, right? And people were concerned <laughs> about, you, you know, and they were concerned about it because they knew the left. They had experience with the left. Right. Um, I, I read a story about David Broder years ago. I think it was, and I think it was David Broder, who, you know, the, the, the standard liberal dean of Washington journalists, had been on a college newspaper in like the 40s in Illinois and had to fend off communists from taking over the newspaper. You know, I mean, his anti-communism wasn't irrational. It wasn't paranoid. He would actually had contact with them. Reagan knew uh, these communists from Hollywood, right? He had had fought against them. They had threatened his life. Uh, The
0: whole ADA, Arthur Schlesinger, all those guys, they saw that, you know, you think about what would have happened if Wallace hadn't been replaced with Truman. Um, I mean, the Democratic Party, I mean, I I think – I come down that Wallace was basically a useful idiot. Exactly. Um, But he was surrounded by seriously bad people who were, in effect, taking orders from (laughs) Moscow. And and people – liberals saw that. And, I mean, the liberals that we were talking about earlier, just sort of free speech, vital center liberals, not conservatives. And we would be considered conservative today in some ways. And they're like, this is bad news, and they actually fought back against it.
1: Yeah, no, I, that, it's exactly right. It's it's hard to sort of teach a younger generation who don't know very much about communism and you know haven't been taught about the purges and the. Forced famines and you know the show trials and all that. They 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 don't understand this, um, and it's a tough it's a tough sell for them. But they understand now. The, the the that was one of the things that the the people who came from the left to National Review or to the neocon movement brought with them was a deeper understanding of you know, sort of the goals and the motives of of the far left. I will tell yeah. you, among historians today, one of the popular American historians, one of the popular threads is that was a wrong turn in American history in 48, t- going away from Wallace was a wrong turn. Because what yeah. liberals did is they said there are enemies on the left. Today, it's no enemies on the left, right? Biden and, and Sanders, right? There's no difference between us. Biden comes out. Uh, but when the ADA comes out, they are saying, here's the dividing line of respectable liberalism and leftism that's out of the bounds. And for historians today, they say that's a wrong turn. What his- what the Democrats should have done is turn left. And then we would have gotten all this wonderful stuff, right? We would have gotten health, universal health care. We would have gotten more civil rights faster. Uh, all of these you know, sort of freedom movements would have come about. And to me, it's such a wrong-headed theory, but I can't tell you how prominent this is in a lot of uh, American histories of the last, t- academic histories of the last 10 or 15 years.
0: That's really interesting. Um... That's really, and anyway, we should talk about them more. In fact, for listeners who are curious, this is basically what it sounds like when Vin and I are driving in a car together. Vin used to have a uh, what was it? It was a Honda Civic, Civic hatchback, and we had worked up this theory that we were both single men back then. We had worked up this theory that this car was so metaphysically aggressively mediocre that we were literally invisible to women while in it. The stealth mobile we called it. Yeah. <laughs> you could pull up right alongside a woman and they all they would see is this vague distortion in the air where we were, because this car was so unimpressive to women. Uh, Tom, <laughs> anyway, Tom
1: Cruise or some actor would be driving the stealth mobile and no one would- It wouldn't no, matter. No, it wouldn't matter.
0: Yeah, uh, it just negates any masculine charm of any appeal of any kind. Yep, car. my car for like 12 years. That- explains a lot of my uh, life in the, my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it would be a shame since Tevi comes up so often on this broadcast that we didn't at least give a shout out to Tevi, uh, who was part of our Troika back then. And uh, Vin, I hope this wasn't as painful as you made it th- seem like you thought it might be. Oh, I didn't uh, think it was painful. No, this was great. And I uh, hope to have you back on. I'd like to talk more about so, uh, future episodes. We didn't get to get around to the New New Deal stuff, which we had talked about talking about. And... Since you're doing the book about Catholicism or Catholic American history, I really want to talk about uh, Father Ryan and and Father Coughlin in relationship to social justice. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, that's great. I'd love love to be back on anytime. All
0: right, right, man, Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Vin Canato. You can come to the uh, show notes to find links to all of his books. You should buy them. And um, uh, Vin, thanks for coming on. Okay, so uh, Vin has left the chat room, I guess we say now, and um, uh, I hope people enjoyed listening to me and Vin talk. Uh, I like talking to Vin. Vin knows a lot of things. Uh, Vin is a very big resource for me in the past for stuff to read and to chew over because he sees things slightly different than me, but it's all a good and lasting friendship and he's smart. Um and uh, and speaking of smart, we need your help. Uh, we have the 200th episode of The Remnant coming. We are going to debut our new intro music. It's very exciting. Um, and in order to make this episode all it can be, we need suggestions for half-baked ideas. I highly suggest you go back and you listen to the uh, last episode with – Mike Gallagher, congressman from the 8th District of Wisconsin, um, and hear our discussion about half-baked ideas to get a sense of what we're talking about. But we're talking about the kind of stuff where you're driving along with your wife or your husband, and you say, you know it would be a great idea if they could do X. And uh, sometimes the X is really a—it's a, a quarter-baked, eighth of a bake, maybe even a tenth of a bake. But sometimes it's a half baked idea, an idea that's conceivably possible, but um, uh, needs to spend a little more time in the oven. The weirder the better. Doesn't have to be about government and politics, although, you know, we have a, you know, when you're talking to a congressman, uh, you're going to emphasize some of that stuff. Uh, But any crazy ideas you've got out there, you can get them on the record as saying, hey, look, I was calling for this a long time ago, because you can go and listen to this episode of The Remnant. And um, I'm on the record suggesting that uh, you know uh, uh, we um, give people dart guns that have the word a little flag that says jackass hanging down from it. That when someone cuts you off in traffic, you can shoot these darts into the side of their car with a suction cup, and it sticks there. And if you get three, um, you automatically get a ticket just for being an a-, a jackass. Uh that is a modified version of an old Gallagher bit. I don't want people thinking I'm plagiarizing, but it's the only thing that came to mind. Sorry about that. Um and on Thursday we are recording um I'm very excited about this, recording an episode with Matt Ridley uh who I'm a huge fan of. He's a very interesting dude. Uh look him up. Uh he's written a bunch of really important books. And he's also, I believe, a member of the House of Lords in the UK. So there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. Um, But please, we need your half-baked idea suggestions. Uh, If all of you who listen to The Remnant, or if all of you who just regularly listen to The Remnant, or all of you who have nice things to say about The Remnant uh, became members, paid members of the dispatch, um, our number of paid members would at least double. And... That would be huge for us. We could hire all sorts of people. Um, we could do all sorts of things. We could switch from word magic to blood magic. I mean, it would be fantastic. So um, I totally understand if during this crazy time you can't swing you know, the money. That's totally understandable. Uh, no hard sell from me. But if you can, uh, we'd greatly appreciate it and uh, we would put it to good use. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just saying that you, know, you guys clearly have some sympathy towards what we're doing. Um, You can't hate me that much. Uh, So if you have the ability, I understand if you don't, these are difficult times. Uh, By all means, no grief from me. But if you can subscribe, if you've been holding off, uh, we really would uh, appreciate it. And um, beyond that, you can send your suggestions to uh, the remnantpod at gmail.com or in the remnant Um, The at Jonah Remnant Twitter feed, uh, which will be monitored closely. And uh, any ideas are welcome there. And also just feedback in general. You know, the reviews on iTunes are great. The reviews and feedback on Twitter are really helpful. Uh, As you may have noticed, I sometimes retweet, you know, the most positive ones. One of the nice things about doing this very long-winded podcast about esoteric subjects is that the people who hate it tend not to tweet a lot of negative stuff because they just don't listen to it. So I I admit there's a bit of a filter bias problem there, but it's one that works to our benefit, so we'll take it. And uh, beyond that, uh, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.
0: Um so our uh sorry something's shaking on my table here we'll cut that out right Nick um <laughs>